From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Joining us from Jackson Hole is Jacob Frankel. He's the chairman emeritus of the Group of 30, a former governor of the Bank of Israel and the former chairman at JP Morgan International. Uh, Jacob, really wonderful to have you with us uh, amidst this beautiful backdrop at really, uh, you know, the point of uh, a precarious point, right, for policymakers as we get to this year's Jackson Hole. The theme, you know, structural shifts in the global economy so different to where we were last year. What is the risk when it comes to potential policymaking mistakes as we enter this part of the economic cycle? Well, it's, a, it's good. First of all, thank you for having me here. Um, indeed, this year is very different than was the situation last year. When we spoke last year, we said that inflation is still very high. Interest rates were still very low. It was clear that the Fed and the rest of the banking the central banking community will need to tighten. We are now in a very different place. Inflation has started to recede. Interest rates have gone to where they should be, or maybe there is still a little bit uh, where to go in the U.S., but basically the objective is there. And I think also that it is fair to say that the doomsday forecasts of a hard landing, a crash landing, have been refuted. So the situation in this regard is better. On the other hand, there are so many new risks that are coming not necessarily from the monetary policy sphere. They are coming from the tension between China and the rest of the world. They are coming from the tension arising between uh, of the Ukraine and Russia. They are coming from the situation of the financial sector in China in the banking community there. They are coming from the fact that the world, in order to resume sustainable growth, cannot be completely detached from China. So the effort should be to, re to reduce the stress, to reduce the tension, and steady as you go when it comes to the Federal Reserve. I think they have done a spectacularly good job. It's very interesting because Bloomberg Economics, you know, saying that when we hear from Jay Powell this year at Jackson Hole, it'll be, you know, less whatever it takes Volcker that we had last year and perhaps more uh, orchestrating a soft landing Greenspan that we'll be hearing in terms of the tone. But you just mentioned just the, the, the scale of global challenges, right, economic, political, not to mention climate, policy divergence, you know, compared to other economies. Is it possible for the Fed to take that into account with its calculus on, you know, where they go from here? Of course, the Fed takes into account the, all the parts of the global economy, but its primary role at the present time is to ensure the price stability. We have had high inflation for too long. 
the tightening has started a little bit too late. So now the Fed is in the phase of reaffirming its credibility, of reaffirming its uh, leadership when it comes to price stability. All other central banks are marching at the same tune. I look at the European Central Bank, the same story. They are tightening, they are making sure that inflation is back within the target below or at 2%. This is where the main objective now. Of course, it is not to the uh, neglect of other objectives, but the concept today is that uh, in order to achieve all other objectives and in order to help other policymakers using their instruments in the most efficient way, the Fed needs to uh, provide the environment of price stability and financial stability, and this is exactly what they are doing now. Jacob, the latest data that you've seen from the U.S., what does that tell you about where the Fed will go on that data dependency stance? Well, uh, I believe that uh, the data dependency will continue to be an important guide, but not in a mechanical way of saying, well, the numbers yesterday were so-and-so, and therefore we should change our policies accordingly, but rather looking forward, not backward-looking, but forward-looking. And the data dependency is really the expected data dependency. The Fed wants to ensure that it is on the right trajectory, and if it sees from the front windshield, not through the back mirror, if it sees in the front a, a window that uh, something is coming there, this will be the data dependency that the Fed will try to prevent, anticipate, and react to. Remember back in 2015 when we had China's messy devaluation of the yuan and Janet Yellen had to take that into consideration. What sort of unexpected event from the world's second largest economy could lead policymakers here in the U.S. to reconsider? Well, of course, the Fed will and is taking into account the international uh, consequences of its activities and what is happening in the rest of the world. China is an important factor and today its financial uh, sector is putting a lot of stress on the system. If you put together the housing situation in China and the extraordinary large debt in China, primarily debt that is off balance sheet, those are the things that are of concern, and everyone in the world is looking at it, of course, including the Federal Reserve. We must ensure financial stability because this is the sine qua non for a prosperous economy. What does this mean then for, for broader developing economies? Because we have seen already some in Latin America, for example, cutting rates, given that their own economies are slowing down. If you add the risk coming from China, not to mention that the U.S. continues that path of higher for longer, uh, what does this mean for those smaller, more vulnerable economies? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the emerging economies in the Latin American ones, because whereas for years the industrial countries were trying to preach and tell the developing countries and the emerging economies how to behave, and uh, they were always uh, coming from behind, in this particular, in recent years, they have been ahead of the game. They have handled the financial stress in a better way than many of the industrial countries. Their financial sector and the banking sector is stronger than what it used to be. And in a way, 
it is now a two-way learning experiences and the industrial countries can also learn from the experience of the emerging economies. So what I would say is that humility is now also called for. We have gone through so many crises, many that em emanated from the financial sector, but in the last few years, they emanated from a completely different, unprecedented place. They came from health, the, the COVID business, they came from a war, the Russia the, uh, invasion into Ukraine, they translated itself into food and energy, the, uh, the business of the supply chain associated with China's uh, situation. So in all of this together has had profound implications on each economy in the world, but they are all cannot be prevented by monetary policy. And this is why, whereas one whether humility is called for, but it's also an agenda item for the governments of the world to deal with their fiscal situation, to deal with their structural challenges, and yes, to deal with the climate, which has much more profound long-term implications on all of us. Uh, Jacob, I wanted to end the conversation by getting your views on the debate over the judicial agenda and, and government agenda in Israel. I thought it was interesting that Fitch kind of made the case in its most recent report, arguing that it's not, uh, you know, these measures will not necessarily doom the uh, the economy and, and the broader kind of, you know, reputational aspects of that. Do you agree with that? Because they're essentially saying that, you know, the, the drive for reform, even over the next four years, may not be that strong. Well, the judicial reform that was proposed would have caused harm to the economy because, look, Israel is a very in a unique situation. It was an extraordinary rapid growth country. It was the crown jewel the ju of the high tech, very innovating, very dramatically attractive foreign investment. Here comes suddenly the judicial reform which really was not uh, urgent in the way in which it was described. Israel does not have a constitution, and therefore it is essential that the judicial branch of government is completely independent, because otherwise the government controls both the legislator and the judicial. So there is a basic struggle today in Israel, who will elect the judges? And I think that as long as the judges are elected not by only by politicians, but in a fundamental way that has worked throughout the previous years, Israel has been and will remain a thriving democracy. But by the same token, one should not be sanguine about it and recognize that some of the proposals would have caused a lot of damage. And that's why there are so many very profound demonstrations in Israel in a democratic way trying to ensure that the legislations that are weakening the judicial branch of government do not go through. And I'm optimistic about it because the young generation and masses of people all over the country from all branches, from all professions, academics, high-tech, lawyers, medical, everyone else, are all recognizing that the secret for Israel's extraordinary performance has been the thriving democracy. It is the only democracy in the Middle East, and we should make sure that it stays as strong as it be, is. And that's, but I'm optimistic because of the large proportion of young people who recognize this matter.
Jacob Frankel, thank you so much for joining us today. He's the former governor of the Central Bank of Israel and chairman emeritus of the Group of 30, joining us from Jackson Hole. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.